Well, one of the things I did as part of my sabbatical this summer, right at the end, was I took a class at uh, Regent College on the book of First, Second, and Third John. And uh, as we're going through the class, students were sharing some stories, and this one was just classic. Uh, the student told that he was getting ready to do a wedding, and so he asked the couple he was doing the wedding for, he said, is there a scripture that you would like me to share as part of your wedding? And the scripture they wanted was 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. Except they made one tiny mistake. They didn't actually say 1 John. They just said John 4, 16 through 19. So he dutifully looked up the passage. And, uh, well, first let me tell you the passage they wanted. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. What a beautiful passage to have at your wedding. Let me share with you the passage that they almost got at their wedding. This is from John chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. So far, so good. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Always pays to check the reference before you preach the sermon. Well, if you have been tracking with us on this series out of 1 John, you'll know that I've been focusing on a variety of different themes that you see weave themselves throughout this book. Uh, one of those themes we talked about the first week is this theme of walking in the light, that we're to follow Jesus with a whole heart, not a divided heart, and that the walk isn't just a mental assent to a doctrinal statement. It, it really is a walk. It is a way of living life and seeking to follow Jesus. And then we talked about this second theme of walking in faith. And specifically, John wants his audience to know that they are to put their faith in Jesus as the eternal Son of God who came into this world, sacrificed himself for us, was raised to life, and has given us his Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus shows us the path and provides the power to walk the way that he walked. And uh, though none of us do that perfectly, uh, we live with the hope that one day we will see him face to face, and when we do, it will be transformative. The third theme, and the one that this young couple was so eager to have included in their ceremony, is that we are to walk in love. Now, August 11th, Burnett and I celebrated 38 years of marriage. So... Jan, Peter, we're hot on your, on your trail there, guys. Um, it was actually more like 47 years ago that I first set eyes on her. She showed up at my bus stop the first day of school after Christmas break when I was in eighth grade. And I was immediately smitten. She was not. Um, <laughs> but I'm persistent. And, um, and so my car, as I got into high school, I got a car, and uh, I had this 1968 Mercury Monterey. A beautiful car. It had oxidizing paint. Um, 
But, but I would take her out, and I would do my best to polish that car. And let me tell you, that was no easy task to try and get a shine on that car. And, uh, and I would pick up kids lots of times for, for different events. And as you know, and any guy knows how to work this, right? If you like the girl, make sure you pick her up first. Okay, this car had bench seats. Be sure you're picking up at least one more person in the front seat because that makes her slide over next to you, right? So I'd fill the car to be sure that there was only one seat for her to sit, and that was next to me. But what would always happen is, when I would drop off the final person in the front seat, besides her, she would slide over the seat. Until this one night. We dropped off the third person, and she didn't slide away. I was afraid to breathe, because I was pretty sure... She wasn't aware that she was still sitting by me and there was an empty seat over there. Well, then came that night that she held my hand. And then she said she loved me. And then the day came that she said, I do. And that was 38 years ago. I was Twitter-pated then, I still am. You know how she knows that I love her after all these years? Well, for one thing, when we moved into our home, I made sure that we had a nice framed picture of the two of us on our wedding day proudly displayed on a table. And then every anniversary on August 11th, I try to get her a nice card. You know, my best handwriting, I write, I love you. That, that's it. <laughs> I, I know, she's a lucky girl. She, she counts her blessings Every year when that card comes. Well, of course, that's funny because you know that if I'm even a little bit serious, then our marriage is in some serious trouble. That there has to be more to being married to someone saying I love you than just a card once a year and a picture you look at from time to time. Because real love demands real action. In fact, I would suggest that real love is only known and shown when it actually cost me something. Real love has to cost. Now, I am proud to say that I eventually sold the 1968 Monterey, and I upgraded. I got a 1972 Mercury Marquis. Yeah, not much of an upgrade. This thing was huge. It was a two-door car, but these doors were like a mile long. It was like a four-door with only two doors. The trunk looked like a hot tub. It, it, it had a 429 inch with a four-barrel carb in it. I mean, if you left it idling at the gas pump, it would get ahead of you. It had horrible gas mileage. But uh, that was my car, and I drove it everywhere. I drove it to college. I hauled kids to college. I mean, that I relied on that car. I drove a lot. But, but then the summer came that I actually sold my car. In fact, I spent the rest of that summer walking and riding a bike, and I borrowed a motorcycle from a guy, and... And, and the reason I sold the car was because I wanted to buy a ring. And so quite literally, for the last 38 years, my wife has been wearing a 1972 Mercury Marquis on her finger. I guess you could say that I got her a Marquis diamond. But you know why I did that? I did that because I love her, and real love will call me to real sacrifice. You know what? God loves you even more than a 1972 Mercury Marquis. Here's what it says in 1 John 4, 9. If you have your Bible turned there, if not, you can flip your uh, program over. It's printed on the back. 
I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. Here's what 1 John 4.9 says. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. There's some big differences between God's love and my love. For one thing, it's a difference of desire. Uh, I was first attracted to Burnett because she was cute. And, and, and actually, when I asked her to marry me, the thing that I was really dreaming of was not the honeydew list that she might generate over the years. I, I wasn't drawn to the work that marriage might cost me. I was drawn to all of the wonderful things I thought she'd bring into my life. But God started loving me when I was anything but cute. In fact, Paul says that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Uh, I was, in my heart, so wrapped up in ugly that it's like I was in the ugly tree, I fell out of the top, and I hit every branch on the way down. God didn't want me for what I could add to him. He loved me because he knew how much I needed to be loved, how much I needed to be rescued. 1 John 4.8, take a look at that. John says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Wow. What a way to define someone. God is love. The most fundamental descriptor of who God is in his nature is that God is love. But it's important you not turn that around. You know in math sometimes, if 3 plus 2 equals 5, well then 2 plus 3 equals 5. It all comes out the same. This is not that kind of equation. God is love, but don't turn that around and say that love is God. If you turn love into a God, love will become toxic. How could love be toxic? Well, love becomes toxic when it becomes our goal in life. What do we call someone who is wrapped up in having everyone love them? That person is a what? They're a narcissist. That's a terrible way to go through life trying to suck love out of everyone around you to try and meet your own needs. I mentioned a couple weeks ago the warning that John ends his letter with, 1 John 5.21, this is from the New Living Translation. He says, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. The actual Greek there, what it says, the ESV translates it to uh, keep yourselves away from idols. An idol is that false thing that I set up, that I turn into a God, that I think it can meet my needs. And John says, don't, don't let anything take the place of God. God is love, but love is not God. When God is kept at the center, when we really grasp how much he loves us, it should push us to action. God says, if you really know the God who is love, you will love. Knowledge will lead to action. Experiencing love should lead to practicing love. 1 John 4.11, he says, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. They should go hand in hand. One should flow out of the other. And, and when John talks about loving each other, he means it 
in very practical ways. 1 John 3.16, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Wow. Are you willing to die for the people you love? I guess I'd say, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it came right down to it, you know, if, if, a, if a, a wild gunman ran in the scene, I, I, I think, yeah. I, you know, I, in fact, I'm pretty sure I keep in my back pocket a little, a little superhero mask here because I am, I've got that in me. I'm, I am, I'm that guy. If it came to it, I could be that superhero. But the problem is, John didn't stop with that idea of what love is. It would have been nice if he had, because we all would like to believe that if it came right down to it, yeah, I could do the hero thing. I, I could do that. But John keeps going. Here's what he says, verse 17, the very next verse. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? I'm going, now hold on a minute, John. It's okay if you get into my mask pocket. That's all right. That someday I might be that kind of hero. But, but now you're getting into that other pocket. That's the one where I got like the cash. And, and I don't think that we should be reducing love to a dollar figure. You know, I mean, it, it's about more than a spreadsheet. That seems to cheapen the whole experience. We're going to talk about love that way. But, but you see what John is doing, right? He's saying that real love is only real when it turns into real costly action. Not just my imagination of what I might do someday, maybe, but, but something that I'm actually able to do now with whatever it is that God has given me. The hero mask is my romantic idea of love, but John is talking about 72 Mercury Marquis kind of love. Love that moves you to do something sacrificial. And, and I want you to know right up front that I am not fundraising for anything. I just want to challenge us to ask ourselves how much we genuinely love each other. I don't think that John was really concerned with fundraising either. He just knew that nothing says real action in shorthand quite the same as real cash. Costly love may mean that I meet a financial need. Boy, I've been through those times in life. When we were a young family, there were times that there was more month than money. And, and there were people that, that God used that stepped in and, and blessed us at times. But it's not just about money. It may be stepping in to help with a chore. I've told before about a, a friend of Burnett's when Burnett was a young mom and just in the throes of all these little kids in the house. And this friend decided that what she would do is she would give up one day each week of her time to come over and watch our kids and give Burnett a break. And I'll, let me tell you, that meant way more to Burnett at that point than cash. But it was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of time. It may mean taking time out of a busy schedule to visit some, someone who is lonely or who's grieving. But if our understanding of God's love doesn't push us to do something for someone else 
beyond our comfort zone, then John would say maybe we don't really understand God's love. God's love for us pushed him way outside of the comfort zone. 1 John 3.18 says, Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Now, the last few weeks, we have had a few ant problems at our house. And uh, we first saw them on the kitchen counter. They had found a little dot of honey, and they're all making their way dutifully over to the dot of honey. Um, and I'm amazed as I watch the little guys at the amount of work that these insignificant little ants can get accomplished. I mean, that little dot of honey just kind of disappeared. I go out on my, my back patio. We've got pavers out there. And there are all of these piles of sand. It's amazing how much sand these little ants push up because they're all working away at it. They just keep going. I remember being in Honduras years ago, and it was at night, and we were shining a flash around looking in the jungle, and we saw something moving. We got looking at it, and it was a whole procession of leafcutter ants. And, and each one had a chunk of leaf about like that, carrying it over their heads, all marching a line into the jungle. But they were just eating this tree that had fallen down. Those little ants have a pretty simple task. They don't really have any idea of the big picture. And, and any one of them by itself couldn't do much. And yet, they know what their task is. Their task is go find food and bring it back even if it's just a little bit. And all you got to do to find the food is just follow the trail in front of you. Just follow the trail, get some food, bring it back. One ant finding food also lays a trail for another to find food. And when they all follow the trail, suddenly great things happen. I would suggest that Jesus left us a trail. He wasn't looking for picnic goodies. He was looking for hurting people. And then he said, follow me. And some of us look at the needs around us. We look at the needs in the world. We look at the needs in our communities. Sometimes just look at the needs in our own family or our next-door neighbors, and we think, it's too much. I, I can't solve all of this stuff. Jesus never asked you to solve all of it. All he asked you to do was to follow the trail and grab whatever little bit in front of you you can grab and do what he asked you to do. And when all of his people do that, big amazing things do happen. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You got your communion elements? Don't open them up yet. Just pull it out. Have it in hand. And, and I, was, I was meditating on this verse as I was preparing. And it struck me in a fresh way that John, the guy who wrote these words, when he talks about Jesus laying down his life for us, John actually saw Jesus on the cross. You and I look at some little symbols, some bread and cup, as a reminder of what Jesus did. But John saw Jesus on the cross. He had direct eye contact. In fact, it was with some of Jesus' last 
gasps from that cross that he spoke directly to John. The cross that John saw was not a sanitized, jewel-encrusted, historically weighted-down religious symbol. The cross in its day was the hangman's noose. It was the executioner's guillotine. It was the warden's electric chair, but far worse. The cross was execution dialed down into slow motion. And John watched his revered teacher and friend bleed and die on that instrument of torture. But John saw more than that. He witnessed an innocent man who willingly surrendered himself to death at the hands of proud and wicked men. He heard that innocent man pray forgiveness over his enemies with his final breaths. He saw the sky darken. He felt the ground shake as that innocent man gave up his spirit. But then three days later, to his absolute disbelief and amazement, that man was standing in front of him once again, person to person, risen with life, brimming with strength. And John suddenly realized that, indeed, this man, Jesus, was the Christ, God's Son, the long-awaited deliverer. 1 John 1.3, he says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we've heard. So, you have the bread and cup in your hand. Jesus told his followers that they should do this regularly in remembrance of him. And I think that that remembrance is not just so that we stay mindful of a historical fact. That remembrance is because what Jesus did for us has both transformed us, but it also puts a call on our lives that we are to love the way Jesus loved. We are to be constantly reminded of his great love for us and constantly called to do the same for others. Do you remember what Jesus did just before the cross, right, at, at that last supper? Just before he gave them the bread and the cup, he washed their feet. He said, if, if this is what I, as your master, am doing for you, this is what you should do for each other, okay? It's not just the big, bold, amazing thing that's going to happen tomorrow, which is I'm going to literally give my life for you. But part of how you live that out, how you follow me, is even in the simple, humble act of service to each other, the washing of feet. I used to go to a church where whenever they took communion, they had a foot washing service that went along with it. So as we're going to do, before we take the bread and cup, now, we're going to do the bread and the cup together, all right? So when you're ready, just peel the top off the bread first. What I want you to do is um, I want you to bow your head and spend a few moments in prayer. And I know it can be real quiet. Uh, Burnett, maybe you'd like to come just do something on the keyboard for us. But I want you to take a moment quietly, your eyes closed, to just ponder how much Jesus loves you. You individually, you specifically, how much Jesus loves you. Go ahead, take a moment.
No matter what you've done, no matter what your past looks like, Jesus loves you. He doesn't love you because you've always been so cute. He doesn't love you because you've got anything for him that he needs. But he knows that you need him. And he loves you. And he gave himself for us. And and maybe you've never opened yourself up to that invitation to make Jesus the leader of your life. And there'd be no better way to finish a time like this than for you to take that step and say, Lord Jesus, you know me, you know my history, you know the messes I've made, but I need your love. And I accept your gift. Now I want you to also take a moment and ask God if there is something specific that he wants you to do to love someone else. Maybe there's something God's put on your heart in the last week or two, and and you just kind of keep putting off. You think, "I'll, I'll get around to it. You haven't got around to it yet. Maybe God would just bring a need to your mind and say, you know, my child, I love you, and I put an opportunity in front of you for you to love someone else. And maybe it's scary to you. Maybe it's scary because it seems costly. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort. You may have to give something up. Maybe it is going to involve some money. Whatever it is, is there someone that God has put in front of you that he would say, follow the trail. Here's what I want you to do. Make it real. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Lord Jesus, we, as much as we try in quiet moments to fathom your great love for us, we don't have an inkling. We certainly don't have the experience of someone like John who who had been there firsthand. But Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you loved us so much. So much that you're willing to take our place, willing to take the punishment that we deserved, to set us free, to make us your own, to make us children of God. We take this bread now in honor, in reverence, in memory of what you have done for us. Let's take the bread together. He also took the cup. He said, this cup is a cup of a new covenant. It's, it's a new agreement that God is willing to make with us as his people. He said, this is my blood shed for you. This is my life that I am willing to give to you. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that not only have you taken our punishment, 
you have given us your life. We take this cup in remembrance and in reverence for who you are and what you have done for us. Let's take the cup together. Consider how greatly we've been loved. Who are you being called to love in return?